1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, Monday, Tuesday. Today must be Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Isn't it awkward how when you have a day off, as we did because of Memorial Day, it just sort of Things are uh, a little bit off. James and I were talking earlier, and we both admitted that we feel like tomorrow is Friday. We've only been here two days, but tomorrow feels like Friday. I promise you we will be here tomorrow, and we will notice the fact that it's Thursday instead of Friday, and we'll act appropriately. Anyway, we're looking forward to uh, sharing a number of guests with you today. We're going to talk with Jeff Jemerson in our next segment. He's with Oregon Life United. And as you know, there is a petition circulating across the state this close to having a sufficient number of signatures to put that on the ballot, which is extraordinary. Uh, but you need to have uh, you need to exceed the necessary number, which is something we're around one hundred and seventeen thousand in order for those signatures that may not quite um, um, be up to snuff, that are going to be thrown out. You have enough to buffer uh, that possibility. So we're going to talk with him a little bit about that. But they're also um, featuring a special event. It's one of their Speak Life events, and they've held a number of them across Uh, the state over the last several months. Uh, This uh, coming Friday here in Portland, actually Lake Oswego, Abby Johnson is going to be here. She's going to uh, be a featured speaker as well as a testimony from a local woman who found healing and forgiveness in Christ from a past abortion decision. And that's going to be at... uh, our Lady of the Lake Catholic Church, on Friday, this coming, 6.30 p.m., will give you all the important details about that event and get a status update on the number of signatures gathered to put the question on the ballot here in the state of Oregon for only the second time that would end state funding of abortion. So that's coming up in our next segment. We're also going to talk with Welby O'Brien. She is the author of Love Your Vets, Restoring Hope for Families of Veterans with PTSD. Now, PTSD is not solely the... Uh, Uh, the result of combat uh, injuries or exposure to combat. Others can have it as well. But we're going to talk about how to support those who live with veterans who have experienced or are suffering from PTSD, beginning with a definition of what it is that we're referring to. In the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Fred Lucas. He's the White House correspondent for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. On the um, claims about uh, the president and minors missing, uh, lost is the word that they've been using, these uh, minors who are here illegally uh, that the headlines seem to suggest are lost. We're also going to talk with Harry Miet. He is the vice president of legal affairs and chief litigation counsel at the Liberty Council. We'll talk about the Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund subpoena. This is uh, separate from the lawsuit. We'll explain what that's all about. But it has to do with transgender in the military and presidents uh, at Evangelical Advisory Council. We're also going to talk with Dr. Dan Critchett, who is the host of Second Half Now. It's a radio program coming to our sister station, AM 800. It's going to be heard on Sunday nights at 6 beginning June the 3rd. We'll tell you more about the program. And it uh, really focuses on baby boomers and beyond that second half of life and how to live it well. So that's uh, our lineup for today's program. Well, some of our Salem area listeners were warned not to drink the tap water, but uh, were warned with a rather confusing and alarming (laughs) text uh, that was mishandled, apparently. Officials warned residents in Salem, uh, I guess it was last night, not just this morning, although many people woke up this morning. Uh, They're in the Salem and Turner area, surrounding areas, to temporarily avoid drinking tap water after they detected low levels of toxins in the water supply. Apparently, algae blooms, which we've certainly experienced here as well, cause a cyanotoxins. Uh, It's found uh, last week in the Detroit Reservoir, which supplies water to the cities of Salem and Turner, as well as suburban East Salem Water District and uh, Orchard Heights Water Association. Well, the advisories should especially be heeded by young children, pets, and anyone with poor health or weak immune systems, as well as anyone pregnant or nursing, according to the City of Salem. Now, city officials said the water is harmless to shower in, to wash your hands or dishes, as well as clean or do laundry in. But drinking the water could cause symptoms that include vomiting and diarrhea, and it can also lead to kidney and liver damage. So you want to stay away from the water until that Emergency is lifted. Well, city and state health officials are monitoring the water. It's not immediately clear when that advisory is going to be listed, lifted, rather, but officials recommend bottled water as an alternative for drinking and cooking. And I know from some of our co workers here that live in the Salem area, finding bottled water in Salem this morning was. Um Pretty much not possible. But residents in Marion County, as well as other areas, including Clackamas, Benton, Deschutes and Yamhill counties, they received text alerts this morning at 830 or rather last night at 830 from the Oregon Office of Emergency Management declaring a civil emergency in the area until 1128 p.m. and to prepare for action. Well, you can imagine that residents who get this warning in all of these uh, counties are wondering what on earth is happening. In fact, one of my coworkers said he thought, you know, we're at war and somehow we're supposed to do something. People were coming out of their homes, not quite sure. What to do? Well, the alert has prompted the city as well as police agencies in those areas to declare there is no civil emergency and urged residents not to call 911, which is, of course, what you want to do when you get that kind of text alert. That's very uh, confusing. Corey Grogan, who's an emergency management uh, office spokesman, said the alert went out on behalf of the city of Salem regarding the water situation. He didn't know why the alert said it was a civil emergency or why it went out to people outside of Marion County. So there was clearly a serious problem. A second alert was sent out later by the emergency management office, declaring a water emergency for the Salem area and, uh directing people to the city of Salem's website for more information. So crisis averted. When the second alert went out at about 9 p.m., the city's website was down. It was still down a half an hour later, so people who did go to the website for clarification would have been confused and even more disappointed. Uh, Around 9.40, the emergency management office sent a statement attributing the widespread alert to technology issues. Uh-huh uh that it was still trying to determine the cause of the civil emergency term used in the first alert was part of a phrase uh phrasing in a default notice. We're seeing a lot of these emergency messages being sent or missent or saying the wrong thing, so it seems we need to get that whole system uh as it uh, uh is available in various parts of the country. Uh, up and running correctly. The statement went on to say that OEM, Office of Emergency Management, understands that the default message caused concern among residents and is working to learn the issues to be corrected. My guess is by now that has been done, but at the time it was rather uh, disconcerting and confusing to residents not only in Salem, but in the surrounding Areas. Well, some questions that are being asked is there something that can be done to treat the water so it's safe for drinking? And according, according to David Farrar, a public health toxicologist with the Oregon Health Authority, he said there really isn't anything to be done to treat the water. Boiling the water doesn't work. Uh, camping filters don't work. Nor do filters that um, attach to faucets. He says it's best for children and others in vulnerable populations to not drink the water until the advisory is lifted. So there you have it. Well, the particular um, let's see, cyanotoxin. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. But anyway, in mammals, exposure to this particular toxin can cause allergic reaction, respiratory issues, acute illness, uh, liver and kidney damage according to the U.S. Geological Survey with extreme exposure symptoms can include organ failure, paralysis, and even death. So you don't want to drink the water. Uh, City of Port Salem rather will post an updated advisory when the uh, toxin levels are less than or equal to the National Drinking Water Health Advisor advisories. Uh this do not drink advisory is lifted and or uh, if the um, uh, any other changes to the conditions of this do not drink advisory according to the official city report updates will be provided Thursday that's tomorrow uh, via the city of salem website so you might want to check that out cityofsalem.net city of salem alert system local media city of salem social media residents can sign up on the cityofsalem.net to receive emergency alerts from the city and hopefully moving forward they'll actually be accurate water was sampled by the way last week and officials received the results of the testing of the water on saturday the results showed that the toxin levels were higher than a health advisory level for vulnerable communities and for children but remained below safe levels for adults well the city's been coordinating with the oregon health authority over the weekend and they wanted to be proactive because uh, they're coming up on the 10-day exposure period that means that if people are exposed to it for 10 days that's when the probability of health issues increases so you've probably been consuming it for a few days and this being approaching the 10th day it was time to stop Uh, every bloom is different they say but the the detroit reservoir has algae blooms every uh, year sometimes not um, not as serious as uh, as this one there are apparently three toxic blooms uh, identified in locations around detroit lake and uh, this particular uh, version of it is not safe for human consumption all right, 16 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. Up next, we'll talk with Jeff Jemmerson, Oregon Life United. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Abby Johnson is the former director of a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic in Texas. In 2009, she experienced an incredible transformation and now she's a pro-life advocate who helps others leave the abortion industry. Well, she's been invited to Oregon Life United's Speak Life event that's coming up on Friday, June the 1st in Lake Oswego. And here to tell us more about that and to bring us an update on Oregon Life United's efforts to put the question of whether or not state funds will go to abortions to fund abortions here in the state of Oregon. Uh, So I'm delighted to have with us Jeff Jimerson with Oregon Life United. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Hi, Georgine. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm excited that Abby Johnson is going to come to uh, to Lake Oswego to speak in this effort to gather sufficient signatures to put the question of state funding of abortion on the Oregon ballot. Tell us about the Speak Life event that's coming up that's actually been taking place across uh, the state.
3: Yeah, we've done a few of these, as you know, over the past several months. And. We just completed a couple with a remarkable woman named Gianna Jessen. Yes. And this and this week we are doing two events with Abby Johnson. The first is actually going to be in the Dalles, which will be tomorrow night. And then we're going to be in the Portland area, like you said, and like us, we go on Friday night. So the event is really about equipping the church, the body of Christ, to be a voice for the voiceless. And, you know, that's the motto. We, we want to equip christians on how to deal with the issue of abortion and the sanctity of human life and at the same time we also want to facilitate it in, in as many ways that we possibly can we want to facilitate women who have had abortions their path towards healing their journey towards finding healing and forgiveness in christ so we really encourage um, gals who maybe have um, an abortion experience in their own past you know we're going to have a testimony shared in addition to abby speaking. Mm-hmm that um, is really going to minister to women who uh, may be carrying guilt and burden from, from a past abortion.
2: Well, and there's something very compelling about the testimony of a woman who has experienced transformation because of the grace of God, who's found healing and forgiveness in Christ from a past abortion. Some who have had abortions may not imagine that's possible to experience that kind of freedom. So these are uh, this is going to be a very compelling testimony. And uh, again, if you know someone who has personally experienced an abortion, you might want to invite them to attend. Uh, because this will be an encouragement and an uh, inspiration for them as well. Now, as I mentioned, Abby Johnson is a former director of A Planned Parenthood, and uh, many might imagine it's not possible for someone to experience the kind of dramatic transformation she experienced as well, that now uh, she is uh, working as a pro-life advocate.
3: Yeah, it's really a neat story. You know, she tells her story, I've heard her speak a couple times, about, you know, she was really essentially loved over to the other side. You know, there were people who were praying outside of her abortion clinic, and they had, you know, an impact on her. And, you know, this is truly, you know, we we love when we see God change someone's heart. Yes. And so this is really a, a living example of someone turning 180 degrees, recognizing, gosh, this this work that I'm doing, you know, she wasn't herself doing abortions, but but that day that she was invited to assist the doctor in doing abortion, that's what really sort of struck her heart. This is, this is taking a life. And so, you know, that transformation in her heart began and eventually, you know, she just walked away and and now she's, she's doing whatever she can to share the truth and to help other people leave um, the abortion industry as well. So it's just a really neat story of God's, um, a redemptive uh, grace and ability to change hearts that we think maybe not be possible to be changed.
2: Yeah, I think for many of us, we imagine because Roe versus Wade stands, there's nothing that can be done, and there's nothing further from the truth. I think her testimony is certainly an example of that. We can be a praying people. We can also be active and in influencing what happens in our own communities and in our own state. And we have an opportunity through the petition drive that is raising signatures. We have currently 115,000 but need, what, 150 What's the yeah, number? Our goal is
3: 150. Yeah. 150. We, we, we need 117,000 and some change valid signatures. But, you know, when we turn those in, we have to have a bunch extra because people who sign the petition you aren't registered to vote, or they sign twice, or there's a mistake somewhere else on the sheet. You know, we have to have extra. So, yes. we're we're really close, <laughs> which is encouraging. But we also have work to do in the next 30 days.
2: Yeah, because what they do in Salem is they take a sampling. You may have 110 perfect signatures, but they take a sampling. And then if they find that there are... Signatures that are from people who aren't registered or aren't in the area or there's some mistake of of any kind, then they that sample represents the whole number and they can throw them out saying you don't have enough. They don't look at every single signature. So it's important to have an excess of them for that purpose. And um, the time is is drawing near. What is it? The the. June thirtieth. June thirtieth. Thank you. I'm looking all over my paper here trying to see. So (laughs) those signatures have to be uh, turned in by June the thirtieth. So if you have petitions sitting around your house, or you think, oh yeah, that's right, I'm going to circulate those, or you um, you haven't yet signed one, now is the time to do that because that uh, that deadline is drawing near. And as you pointed out, we're very very close. In the meantime, you have an opportunity to attend a great event with Abby Johnson and a woman whose life uh, was impacted by the abortion decision that she made, but a transformation occurred because of the grace of God. She's going to share her testimony, and that's coming up uh, in Lake Oswego on Friday, this coming, that's June the 1st, 6.30 p.m. at Our Lady of the Lake Catholic Church. And uh, you can get more information on the website. And what's the best place for them to do that? I don't want to presume Yeah.
3: Yeah. The best place to to get tickets. So we're giving away free admission tickets. Uh You can get those at the Oregon Life United website. So it's just www.oregonlifeunited.org. And then click on the link that says Speak Life. And you'll be able to follow the page to Abby Johnson. Uh, Folks can also call us. And the phone number is 541-286-3039. And we'll be happy to um, put your name down and make sure you have a seat
2: at um, Our Lady of Lake this Friday. Okay, 541-286-3039. And our program isn't heard in the Dalles, but I will mention that she's going to be uh, in the Dalles on Thursday uh, this coming. That's tomorrow at 630 at Calvary Baptist Church. So if you happen to be in that area or you know someone that lives in uh, in and around the Dalles, you might let them know as well. Again, that telephone number, 541 286 39 or OregonLifeUnited.org. O-R-G. O-R-G. Yep. Okay. Good. Well, yeah. Jeff, I appreciate your perseverance and persistence. I know there are lots of people that are working toward getting this question on the ballot, and I'm praying that that will be successful. Uh, but also I would encourage people to come and be encouraged inspired. Maybe you're discouraged uh, as a pro-life person. This is a great opportunity to be reminded that God is at work right here in our community. And uh, Oregon Life United is helping to... Uh, to shepherd that effort, so thanks, Jeff, and we'll uh, we'll be in touch um, probably in the next week or so to see how things are going.
3: Yeah, I really appreciate that, and thank you for uh, helping get the word out and just kind of encouraging and, and cheering on. The church needs to get uh, needs to get involved. So Absolutely, we'll
2: part of that. Hey, thanks, Jeff. We'll talk again soon. Likewise. Okay, bye-bye. Again, uh, Jeff Jimerson is with Oregon uh, Life United, and you can uh, get your tickets. They're free admission. 541 286 3039. 541 286 3039. Or go to the website OregonLifeUnited.org. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Welby O'Brien, author of Love Our Vets Restoring Hope for Families of Veterans with PTSD.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. 33 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the truth of the matter is, post traumatic stress syndrome can affect anyone not just veterans. Well, in the U.S. alone, it affects millions, along with all those who live with them and care about them. Well, Love Our Vets is devoted to addressing the unique and profound needs of those who love and surround the PTSD survivor. Love Our Vets answers over 60 heartfelt questions, providing down to earth wisdom and much needed tips for self-care. My guest is a counselor. She uh, lives with a 100% disabled veteran with PTSD. Well, the O'Brien gives hope in her book, Encouragement and Practical help for families and loved ones caught in the wake of that trauma well again the book is titled love our vets restoring hope for families of uh, families of veterans with PTSD and my guest Welby O'Brien has a master's degree in counseling from Portland State University and a teaching degree from Biola University she's been featured as a guest speaker across the country and interviewed on radio and television in addition to love our vets she has authored several books including formerly a wife and goodbye for now as well well as contributed to Chicken Soup for the Soul and Shepherding Women in Pain. She initiated and continues to facilitate the national support network known as Love Our Vets PTSD Family Support, LLC. She joins us today to talk about her latest book to help us love our vets. Welby O'Brien, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Georgine. Well, let's begin by talking about post-traumatic uh, stress syndrome or PTSD, what it is and what it isn't.
4: Okay. Well, as you mentioned a moment ago, it actually can affect anyone. Most people sort of associate it with veterans because that's where we hear about on the news and so on. But it can affect anybody, and it results from an exposure to an experience that's horrific or life-threatening. And what happens is the, the whole person gets locked into emergency survival mode. So that's fight, flight, or freeze survival and they stay locked, permanently locked in that survival mode 24-7 at some level for the rest of their life. So when something happens that triggers them back to that original trauma, or for some people it could be multiple traumas, they have no reserve with which to handle it. They're, they're braced expecting another trauma to happen or a repeat of the past trauma, and it totally overwhelms their ability to cope. And so they're actually, it sounds ironic, but they're people who are reacting normally to an abnormal experience.
2: And as we mentioned earlier, you don't have to be a veteran to experience that trauma, um, but we do see it with many of our veterans. Right. Right. It could happen from an auto accident, a tragic loss of a loved one.
4: It could be a a one-time incident, or it could be over a, a long period of time, such as Abuse, but many of our veterans, and particularly the combat veterans, did experience trauma and most of them over and over again. In fact, if you talk to a veteran who was a medic, then they likely, very likely, could have been traumatized almost every day of their service. And then that correlates to what we call anniversaries, which No matter how many years or decades it's been since the trauma, when that date comes around each year, they're going to have a hard time whether or not they consciously remember it or whether it's
2: tucked away. Mm. You write in a a card that you published titled PTSD Basics that PTSD is not... Um, a chosen situation, an illness, a temporary condition, nor is it 100% curable. People who struggle with it are not crazy, they're not weak, they're not failures, bad people, nor are they without help and hope. They can learn to thrive again. And that's an important part of understanding what PTSD is and what it is not.
4: Definitely. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned that card. We, We give those out for free by the hundreds, anybody that wants them. It's a It's a really nice five-by-seven PTSD basics Mm -hmm. card, and we also have it as a graphic that you can share on social media. And if you want to just contact us at loveourvets.org, we'd be happy to provide you with as many of those as you want. It's a, a synopsis of what PTSD is, and you just read what it is not. And then the backside has a list of what we should not do or not say and things that we can do that are helpful.
2: You know, I really appreciate that part of the card as well, because I think many of us um, don't say anything because we're not sure what should be said or what we shouldn't. So this is a, a very useful uh, bit of information to help us approach those that we care about in ways that are going to be constructive. Now, you have a background in counseling. You live with a husband who is 100% disabled. He's a veteran with PTSD. Let's talk about what life for you and your husband is like caring for him as a disabled uh, veteran, but also as one suffering from PTSD. Well, uh,
4: because the PTSD never, ever goes away, uh, even when you have good days, it's kind of scary because you sort of forget about it and and then all of a sudden it's like a sneaker wave. <laughs> Something can happen to, to trigger them. And, and there are many different symptoms of PTSD. So some people will manifest a lot of them, some just a few. Uh, and so each person is different as to how, how that's going to look. And the amazing thing that I had to learn... <laughs> Um, and I'm still learning, tomorrow I will know more than I know today probably, mm-hmm. um, is how the PTSD affects not only the individual who has had the first-hand trauma, but it they actually call it second-hand PTSD or vicarious trauma. And the the PTSD totally impacts all those who are close to and love the PTSD survivor. So my guess would be that for every one person who has PTSD, probably 3 to 5 others around them are going are going to be affected also. And that for me means I discovered one day that I I can get triggered too. I discovered that I have an exaggerated startle response. If, some, if somebody comes in the room or I hear something I just talk, jump. And I'm finding myself to be on alert and hypervigilant. And some of these traits, these uh, signs show up in us as loved ones as well. So it kind of uh, goes back and forth. But I can just honestly say that uh, I'm very thankful to the Lord and very grateful to be blessed to be married to my husband. And in spite of, as might be, called The Elephant in the Room. We, we came into the marriage bringing our own baggage and, and yet knowing that the PTSD was a component. I can honestly say it's for both of us that we are both happier and more fulfilled than ever before in spite of the challenges. And and that's our message of help and hope on yes. the, the, the Love Our Vets, the book and the website. So we want to get that message out.
2: Well, and it's so important to have that hope. Now how would someone know if they or their loved one has PTSD? What are some of the typical symptoms?
4: Okay, yeah. The good news is, is that not everyone has all of these. It's kind of a daunting list, but some of the typical symptoms include anxiety, avoidance, depression, easily startled, fear, flashbacks, hypervigilance, intrusive thoughts of the trauma, irritability, difficulty holding a job memory blocks, nightmares, numbing, um, outbursts of anger or other emotions. It can also uh, wind up in substance abuse or other addictive behaviors, relationship problems, sleep problems. Some people with PTSD rarely sleep because that adrenaline is pumping all the time, Uh, putting up walls, withdrawing, and unfortunately sometimes suicidal thoughts and attempts.
3: Hmm.
4: The good news is, and I want to always tuck the good news in, because there's a lot of doom and gloom surrounding the, the subject, is that there is hope and that they can learn to thrive again.
2: Now, you described um, having a sort of secondhand PTSD, living with someone uh, who has it. How does living with someone for the for the average family member, for example, the average family um, how does it impact them and, and how does your book help them love their vets through uh, what you've experienced and so many others do as well?
4: Well, one thing, one of my famous haha quotes is, it takes an exceptional person to love a warrior, especially a warrior whose war will never cease. And uh, the war actually has come home for so many. And it ends up that we are part of that ongoing conflict, even though it's kind of invisible. And as we see symptoms of PTSD and us, we get triggered, we lose sleep. We need to be really diligent as any caregiver would to pay attention to our own needs, to stay mindful of what we need to take care of us so that we don't burn out. And I know as Christians, sometimes we think, well, that's not very spiritual, and we've got to always put the other person first, but um, I think that's pretty much a recipe for burnout and maybe possibly bad theology, but um, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that, (laughs) but it is possible and very important to, as we love, take care of ourselves, and the other crucial thing, and I talk a lot about this also in the book, is connecting with others, who can be there for support. None of us, whatever our challenge in life, none of us is alone. And to be able to have an ongoing connection of encouragement with other people who can relate, who understand, and who can kind of spur each other on as we learn and grow, and that's really important. So the book is loaded with questions that are unique to loved ones of those with PTSD answers, of course. A whole section that's a, a combination of wisdom and input from other people, and then a, a large section that's kind of a, a checklist on and how am I doing with, in different areas of self-care. So it kind of covers the bases. It's more of a reference book rather than necessarily meant to be read from cover to cover. So you can jump around and find the area that you need for the day and just Get some practical ideas and some encouragement.
2: We're talking with uh, Welby O'Brien. She's the author of Love Our Vets, Restoring Hope for Families of Veterans with PTSD. We're going to take a quick break, but we will return and continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Welby O'Brien, who has a master's degree in counseling from Portland State and a teaching degree from Biola. She's the author of many books, but their latest is Love Our Vets, Restoring Hope for Families with Veterans with PTSD. Uh, Let me ask you, by the way, the book is uh, published by Deep River. Your husband, uh, you and your husband are both uh, believers, you're Christians. Has your faith made a difference in in your battle with PTSD and your relationship with one another? Another. I like
4: absolutely I I say in the book that faith and love are key and faith is that connection with God, love is the connection with other people. And we know that God never promised to take away trauma or shield us from hard times and give us a comfortable life, but He does promise to be with us in the pain in the moments when we wish it would all go away, he offers power, promises, perspective, and there's a purpose. And it's even more of a blessing when you can share that faith and pray together with the one that you love. And one of the things about trauma is that one of the worst things, actually, is how alone it makes you feel. Mm. And, and with the Lord, you got to know that Jesus knew all about trauma. And so knowing that he would be there to walk with you if you were to reach out to him is just, it's huge. And I know people who are not yet at that point in their life where they've reached out to the Lord and received that, and and they do struggle. And it's, it's a lot harder for me to watch that than those that struggle and know that the Lord is there with them. Uh, we know Romans eight twenty eight promises that as his children, the things that we go through are going to serve a purpose, whether we see that goodness now in this life or not. But that's really important to, to have that hope and to know that the Lord is with us and to be able to share that journey with the one you love. And so, yes, most definitely faith and love are key.
2: Your book is divided into three parts, reaffirm, replenish, and reflect. For our listeners who don't have a copy of the book in front of them, as I do, um, describe how the book is arranged and how you um, expect your readers to approach it.
4: Okay, well, just um, side note here, I'm sort of not a very good reader myself, (laughs) and I, I like to set my books up so that they don't need to be read from the beginning to the end. And it's The first section is a list of over 60 questions that are totally unique to the loved ones of those with PTSD and, and some answers that come from my own life and what I've gleaned from those that I work with every day and have been surrounded with for years. The second section is replenish, and it's all about self-care. And the third is reflecting our wisdom, and that's the input from lots of other people and what they've learned and how they're growing and what has helped them. And then we have several appendices at the end, which is just kind of a, a, another collection of more specific, helpful, hopeful things, one of which is a prayer a day. And there's one short prayer for each day of the month that you can pray for yourself and, and the person you love.
2: Now, um, it's improving, but there's still something of a stigma attached to PTSD, which is one of the reasons I appreciate the card that we referenced earlier. But is there anything that we can do to help change that and help those with PTSD?
4: Yes, and though it may feel like small uh, change, does happen one person at a time. And I think for starters, just, uh, you know, I never knew what PTSD was till we started dating and he told me he had it and I I didn't have a clue. So the first thing I would encourage people to do is, is learn about it and go to our website, loveourvets.org. We've got a tremendous uh, resource of information, um, organizations, blogs, and all sorts of things that can help you learn and connect and find what you need and and to pass on to others if you suspect maybe they're struggling with it or could use some encouragement. And then the PTSD basics card, we've got that, and that's really helpful. So I would just say listen, learn all you can about PTSD, find out what resources are available, whether they're online or if there's anything locally, and just uh, be there to support those that need the support and not feel the need to fix them to just be there. And one more thing too, I have a blog on on the website that's called 10 Things People with PTSD Need from Ministry Leaders and Church People, and actually it should be from all people. But it's a good summary of the basic things that people with PTSD and their loved ones need from the rest of us around them. So you can just go to the website and look that up, 10 Things People with PTSD Need.
2: Again, a wonderful resource. If you could give a few words of advice and hope to someone listening today, someone with PTSD and their loved ones, what would it be? Okay.
4: uh, First of all, learn all you can.
2: Find out what
4: PTSD is, how it affects us, how it affects those around us, and find out what resources are available. There's more resources and there are more therapies now than ever before in all of history. So it's really worth your time to, to look and see what's there and learn about it. Uh, secondly, I would say reach out for help and connect with others for support. It's a hard thing to do, especially those with PTSD. The tendency is to want to just hide and isolate. And, and for the loved ones, so many of them, myself included, feel alone and overwhelmed and like they're the only ones that know what this is all about. And so reaching out and connecting with others who are on a similar journey is just a a ray of hope. And I would encourage people, we have a, a page on our website that helps you connect with online or local support groups.
2: Now, one of the things that you point out is that sometimes patriotic holidays, like the Fourth of July, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, affect those with PTSD. Um, Is is that true? And how should we manage those occasions um, to minimize the impact? Or is that even possible?
4: It's possible. I think the way you ordered it, minimizing the impact is probably the most realistic goal. And it is ironic that the patriotic holidays, 4th of July, and all those can actually re-traumatize a lot of the veterans. So technically, anything taking them back to the original trauma can stir things up. So what may be a trigger for one might not for others. And some of the typical triggers are crowds, parades, loud noises, bright lights, and fireworks. So I, would, I, I encourage people to, first of all, be aware of what your own triggers are. If 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 you really don't feel comfortable around the crowd or the parade or the fireworks, then don't go. And that's totally okay. Just tune into what you need and take care of you. Be aware of it. Talk about it with those that are close to you and have kind of a, a plan. And that can really, whether you just barely get through the day or get through it beautifully, um, those are just some thoughts that I would encourage people to do.
2: Well, again, the book is titled Love Our Vets, Restoring Hope for Families of Veterans with PTSD, published by Deep River. And Welby, thank you so much for sharing your own experience and helping others who love uh, our vets with PTSD, uh, putting this together as a resource to, uh, to help walk them through the challenge of, uh, of that relationship.
4: Well, you are most welcome. And it's a joy to be able to share what I am continually in the process of learning myself and I'm thankful to the Lord that he's put me on this path, even, even with the challenges Yeah, so, yeah. for the opportunity to help spread the message of hope.
2: And please thank your husband for us as well. I will. <laughs> thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Fred Lucas. He's a White House correspondent for the Daily Signal. We'll talk about the uh, claims that t- the DHS lost, uh, immigrant children who had come into the country illegally. Is that true? And if so, how? We'll be back.:
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.:
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Second hour. Glad to have you with us. Well, Democrats have pretty much hammered the Trump administration's immigration policy over the Memorial Day weekend, and President Trump punched back. So, what's true? Apart from the 1,475 children unaccounted for, the office learned that 6,075 children remain with their sponsors. 28 had run away, five had been removed from the country, and 52 had relocated to live with a non-sponsor. So what about the lost children that we're hearing about? The assertion that unaccompanied alien children are lost? Well, HHS Deputy Secretary Eric Hargan says it's completely false. We're here to talk with us about the controversy. Well, the contrived controversy is Fred Lucas. He's White House correspondent for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. Thanks for joining us once again.
5: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
2: Well, let's talk about the controversy. First of all, over Memorial Day, uh, we heard stories about some fourteen hundred children who entered the country illegally, some with their parents, some without, uh, had simply been lost by Health and Human Services. And uh, it it gave the impression that these children either wandered away or they were not properly overseen by the federal government so that there was no they, they had no idea where these children were. Can you first of all tell us what the controversy was?
5: Well uh let, let's get into a little bit how the controversy started. Uh Steve Wagner, who is a HHS official, uh actually testified to the uh, uh, Senate Homeland Security Committee in April and uh during that testimony he did say that uh, the government was unable to determine with certainty to worry about the whereabouts of uh 14, 1,475 unaccompanied children. Uh, that was within the context of the hearing that got some reporting at the time, CNN reported it, others reported it without really hyperventilating on it. Um, in recent days, USA Today ran an op-ed and declare an op-ed, not a news story in which said the feds lost, yes, lost 1475 immigrant children uh, that set off a, a tweet storm among many house and senate democrats and, and once i said this is the democrat or this is the trump administration is losing these poor immigrant children um now the as, as you mentioned uh deputy secretary hargan had said this is completely false it there, there there are potentially two ways of looking at me it might be a matter of phrasing in some ways uh, in, in terms of whether I, I think it's an overstatement to say they were uh, lost, but but uh, the, the government has said that they are not certain of their whereabouts. Uh, one, one thing to keep in mind here, these children are not by law in the custody of the federal government. Uh, the, the federal government... Uh, when, when they, uh, After their parents or the people who escort them over the border, sometimes smugglers, uh, are arrested, these children are given over to some type of uh, sponsors. Uh, if, when possible, uh, that is a relative. Sometimes those relatives are themselves illegal immigrants, and uh, when they've made these follow-up phone calls uh, 30 days into the process, uh, which are not mandatory for for that matter, but these thirty day phone calls into the process, then uh, about fourteen thousand or one thousand four hundred seventy five did not respond to these calls, and that's where this number came from. Mm-hmm. It is not to just presume that something horrible happened to these uh, these non-responses.
2: Yeah, the the phone calls were not returned, and and that's not altogether right. surprising. There are a variety of reasons uh, for right. that. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. and uh, if, if,
5: if their sponsors, who, whose guardianship they were put into, were themselves illegal, they may be less inclined to take the call, uh, which which is a key key thing to remember in this entire thing.
2: So, this is essentially a misunderstanding or perhaps a mischaracterization. But it seems to me it was deliberately. Um, uh, sort of um, exaggerated for the purpose of making political points.
5: I, 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 think there there was a lot of hype to it. Uh, on one hand, uh, on the other, on the other, though, um, I do think uh, there is maybe a bottom line to to look at the fact that uh, Wagner did say uh, the government can't say with absolute certainty what the whereabouts of these uh, 1,475 kids are, almost fifteen hundred, and and the number. And various tweets and follow news stories got elevated to 1,500 kids are lost. Um, because I, but, the, you know, bottom line, I think much of this fits into a narrative of mm-hmm. uh, how people want to paint the uh, Trump administration as sort of horrible, anti-immigrant, um, and it's the children who are suffering. And, and that kind of ties into a convenient storyline that, that a lot of people are attracted to.
2: So in the media
5: and the Democratic Party.
2: Yeah. How is this different than how the previous administration would have handled children who cross the border, sometimes with parents, oftentimes uh, not? Uh, how would they have managed these children? Would they have given them to surrogates when possible, family members or others who oh, agree this, to take care this, of these children? This
5: was, this was an Obama policy. <laughs> the, the, the actual policy itself is no different. And um, that was uh, and, and, and we find there, there's. Sort of the three myths uh, uh, that came up o- over the weekend mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in these criticisms, uh, and one was that this is an Obama policy, not a Trump policy. And uh, one one of the the aspects that, that was showcased in more than anything were these—they um, went viral on social media. These uh, uh, pictures of uh, children in cages, uh, and people saying, "Look what." the Trump administration is doing to these poor immigrant children that turns out these, all these photos were taken in 2014. This was the unaccompanied uh, minor crisis that happened during the Obama administration. And they were in some cases walking these children up and then uh, sending them to sponsors. Uh, the Trump administration would prefer uh, being able to detain the families together for a shorter amount of time and then, being able to deport them. And that's what they're arguing.
2: Mm. Well, again, this is a story that became distorted. Uh, There's a misunderstanding or mischaracterization, uh, perhaps even in the testimony that was given that was uh, that fomented false narratives uh, that led to headlines that didn't represent what was actually happening. And this is unfortunate. I think the American people have are entitled to accurate information and um, truthful characterizations about what's actually happening rather than uh, distortions that may uh, or may not feed one's preconceived notions of what uh, your political opponent is uh, is doing. Now, I, I,
5: oh, I, I, I would uh, throw in one more, um, one more point in the fact check that we did on this, and and that is that the uh, White House uh, at, and, and a press call. Uh, yesterday they they pretty much said these are all democratic loopholes that are allowing these problems to fester and happen um the democrats and the senate particularly are blocking these through filibuster uh that, that that's in part true the, the democrats are going to try to block this through filibuster but the republican majorities are not making a big effort mm-hmm. and uh, they seem to presume they're going to fail uh so it would you know uh, The White House is, and that's part of some politics that we're used to in Washington, but uh, the the White House is largely blaming Democrats. Democrats are against us, to be sure, but Republicans could do a lot more heavy lifting uh, in Congress.
2: Well, we'll certainly continue
5: to uh,
2: to communicate with our lawmakers and keep an eye on what's happening in Washington. Fred Lucas, thank you so much for talking with us once again. Yeah. Appreciate it it very much. Again, Fred Lucas is the White House correspondent for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast on the... uh, claims about the Trump administration and minors here illegally or, in quotes, lost. Up next, we're going to talk with Harry Mitt. He is the vice president of legal affairs and chief litigation counsel at the Liberty Council. We're going to talk about a Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund subpoena against some players in the president's uh, religious council. We'll get into that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. In fact, well, Liberty Counsel filed an objection to a staggering, uh, staggering subpoena from Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund that represents the human rights campaign and other plaintiffs in the case of Karnowski versus Trump. Well, the uh, Liberty Counsel. Um, filed on behalf of Dr. Ronnie Floyd, senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Springdale and the church at Pentacle Hills and Tony Perkins, president of the Family Research Council. Um, They have been targeted for participating in President Trump's Evangelical Executive Advisory Board. Well, here to explain what this is all about uh, is my guest, um, Harry Miett, who is a vice president of legal affairs and chief litigation counsel at Liberty Council. Thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thanks, uh, Georgine, for having me with you. Well,
2: let's start at the beginning. Um, There's a lawsuit that's pending and then this subpoena that we're talking about here today. What is the uh, uh, Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund's beef?
6: So the lawsuit itself was filed against President Trump, not against uh, Dr. Uh, Floyd or uh, Tony Perkins. Uh, What the LGBT activists, represented by Lambda Legal and uh, other groups. So what they are alleging is that President Trump' common-sense directive that transgender persons have enough problems on their own and are not the best ones to uh, represent us with loaded weapons on the front firing lines of our military Uh, They say that decision uh, is unconstitutional, and they have sued in federal court to try to block it or reverse it. Um, They didn't file the lawsuit against Tony Perkins and Ronnie Floyd, but now, through this subpoena power, they are trying to um, force uh, these law-abiding Americans to Disclose every single piece of communication or advocacy they have ever undertaken on the issue of uh, transgender uh, public policy. Um, This is a breathtaking incursion into the rights that are guaranteed by the First Amendment. And uh, we are uh, coming to their defense.
2: Now, what they're seeking, according to your press statement, all communications and documents regarding all public policies regarding transgender people. And this would include every document, every conversation, every note, every thought and everything else concerning anything to do with transgender people on every topic and or issue in government policy. First of all, do they have that kind of subpoena power and how reasonable, in quotes, is it to uh, to request from these parties that kind of explicit information?
6: Well, uh, generally, parties to a civil lawsuit do have a subpoena power to obtain evidence from non-parties, generally speaking. The rules of procedure specifically prohibit parties from using that power as a fishing expedition or as a means to impose undue and unconscionable burdens upon people who are not involved in the lawsuit. Here, we have this subpoena power that's first and foremost uh, in direct contravention of the First Amendment. If there's one thing that the First Amendment protects, it's the right of uh, um, law-abiding Americans to communicate with their government, to be involved in the public policy process without being called to account or to explain why they say certain things or why they believe certain things. Uh, it is unprecedented to uh, to require uh, public policy advocates to disclose uh, their communications with the government. So that's, that's first and foremost. Beyond that, what they're uh, seeking in, in this particular case with these particular subpoenas is unconscionably broad. I mean, if you take just one example, that they want all communications ever um, had with any employee of the Department of Defense, the Department of Defense is the largest employer in the nation and possibly the world. They have over two million people, I believe, on their payroll by the time you count uh, active duty, non-active duty, civil force, and and, and whatnot. Um, to 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 require somebody to go back and figure out whether any of their constituency communications was ever received by any one of these two million employees. It's just beyond the pale. And the proponents of these subpoenas, the the LGBT activists, they know uh, the kind of burden that would be involved here, and they intended these subpoenas to impose that kind of a burden so that they can intimidate these two recipients and anyone else that might wish to defend uh, family values in the public square.
2: So what's likely to happen? I'm sure their constituents are impressed by the breadth of this Uh, of this effort. Um, But as you pointed out, this is not conventional. Uh, What what will happen now that the subpoena has been uh, either granted or issued? I'm not quite sure even how to communicate uh, what's been done. But what's likely to happen next?
6: Sure. What happens in the typical situation is the, the party to the lawsuit issues a subpoena. The receiving party, in this case, Tony Perkins and Ronnie Floyd, submit an objection to that subpoena and then If the uh, party that served the subpoena wants to press the issue, they have to go to a court and persuade a judge to issue an order compelling the recipient to comply with the subpoena. Now, in our objections, we had a 12-page letter uh, chock full of case after case after case, which said that this kind of um, uh, an, an exercise is intolerable under both the First Amendment and the civil rules. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the law is firmly and squarely on our side. We are uh, optimistic that a court of law will see it that way and that uh, this, uh, this train wreck will be uh, stopped before uh, it causes further damage.
2: Is there any penalty for abusing subpoena power?
6: There is. Uh, you know, the, the rules provide for attorneys fees and costs uh, in cases like this. So uh, if they push this much further, um, then our hope is that we would have a, a court not only um, uh, dismiss and, and, and quash is the technical term, these subpoenas as being unlawful, but also impose uh, monetary sanctions uh, on these uh, lawbreakers to uh, um, deter similar conduct in uh, the future.
2: Now, with regard to the lawsuits that's, that's been filed against the president for his policy, what's uh, what might we expect to see happen there next?
6: Well, the Department of Justice is doing a fine job by uh, defending uh, against uh, uh, this lawsuit. There's actually a couple of different lawsuits. Uh, this particular one is pending in the Ninth Circuit. There's uh, one pending in the D.C. Circuit in uh, Washington, D.C., And so, uh, uh, you know, I I think they're being well defended. I think that the trial courts or the district courts, which are currently uh, entertaining these lawsuits, uh, either way they they go, they're not going to have the last word on this issue. I think this is very much an issue that's going to wind up in the courts of appeals and quite possibly at the Supreme Court uh, before too long.
2: Well, we'll certainly watch with interest. Thank you so much for talking with us. I appreciate it.
6: Thank you for covering this important issue.
2: Again, my guest, Terry Mead, is a Vice President of Legal Affairs and Chief Litigation Counsel at the Liberty Council. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Dan Critchett. He's the, uh, uh, going to be joining our KPDQ family on the AM side as one of the co hosts of Second Half Now. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we will be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Every once in a while, I have the opportunity to introduce a new programmer, and today is no exception. I have the opportunity to introduce a new program that's coming to uh, True Talk 800 AM, Sunday nights at 6 PM, beginning June the 3rd. I'm talking about the program Second Half Now. Again, on True Talk 800, it's a radio show for boomers and beyond. Dr. Dan Critchett is the host. He's had a full career of involvement with the life issues of concern to baby boomers. He's worked directly with hundreds of people of his generation, helping them deal with the changes and challenges of life. He's an international teacher, a trainer, a conference speaker, and so much more. And will be the host of Second Half Now, a radio program for boomers and beyond. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Critchett. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Hey
7: there, Georgine. Good to be on with your show. Thanks for having me.
2: We're looking forward to welcoming you to the KPDQ AM family beginning on June the 3rd. For our listeners who are not familiar with Second Half Now, tell us a little bit about the kind of program they can enjoy.
7: Well, it's going to be basically uh, guest-centered, and uh, so my job is to find good guests and ask good questions. (laughs) That's something along the lines of what you do, right? Yes, Yeah. And so we have uh, really, we have an overarching mission and that is to help the 50 plus American live a life that matters. And uh, being in that age group myself, I look around at my friends and others and I find a lot of people are just kind of wandering about life. You know, they used to have some vision or dream about what they might like to do with their life, how they'd like to make a difference, who they'd like to help, what kind of things they'd like to be involved with. And Then life happens, you know, and you just you kind of wear out, you get out, you get tired and you lose that vision. So our show is going to be helping to perk that vision back up again. And to, uh, I say I want people to get up, suit up and show up <laughs> and to be alive and active, living a life that is uh, rewarding and meaningful and fulfilling. And it, it actually can happen for
2: anybody. Well, you know, and I so appreciate that. There's something unique about the baby boomer generation and there's something unique about the second half of one's life. And yes. it used to be right. that you imagine once you get to that point, well, it's pretty much uh, all over and the dreams that you may have had. Um, You have to just jettison those because they're not possible. Today, however, we have the opportunity to do much more in that latter season of life than previous generations.
7: Absolutely. In fact, I believe that the most thrilling and purposeful and meaningful contributions that we will make as humans, and particularly as Christians, will happen in our second half. You know, you use the allegory, say, of a a sports uh, team, you know, and you play in the game. And uh, whether it's football or baseball or something that has a halftime in it, well, the game is never won in the first half. Uh You may be way behind or way ahead, but uh, you've still got the other half to go. And, you know, you've seen some miraculous (laughs) comeback stories (laughs) where some team just kind of somehow puts it all together, and they come back and win, at the you know, in the last quarter or the last minute. And I really believe that our life, you know, by God's direction and enabling, can actually do that same thing. We are open to it and actually we'll we'll seek that. And that's what we'll do week after week, show after show, guest after guest. We want to keep talking about that and invite people to embrace that reality that they really can have the best and most significant contributions of their life in the second half.
2: Oh, I love that. We're talking with Dr. Uh, Dr. Dan Critchett. He is an adjunct uh, faculty member at Concordia University here in in Portland. He's a published author, an active ordained pastor for over 35 years in a major denomination, a member of the 50-plus crowd himself, dealing with all of these issues personally as well as professionally. And I'm with you in that, in that club, so I'm excited here to have club, you. Huh? Yeah, I'm excited to have you be part of the lineup here to encourage this generation to move forward. Now, you're to be focusing on five areas, the home and family, health and wellness, budget and finance, uh, faith, uh, the heart and the soul of the matter, work and purpose. So you're really covering the whole uh, broad spectrum of life in the latter half.
7: What I have found, Georgine, is in doing 75 shows already on another station, that uh, every guest and every topic falls within one of those, and I call them uh, core life priorities, Uh, No matter what you're talking about, what fears you're facing, what troubles you're having, you know, what uh, the positive things, everything in our life, our kids, our grandkids, our jobs, our, you know, everything falls into one or more of those uh, core life priorities. And uh, it's so thrilling because, you know, I'm not asking that people strive for, you know, 100% and, you know, and thriving and hitting home runs in each of those categories but I am wanting to provide connections and resources and inspiration for them to be healthy in each of those. And if you don't mind, I'd like to name them again. Number one is home and family. Number two is health and wellness. Number three is budget and finances. Number four is heart and soul. And number five is work and purpose. And so we want people to be healthy and to actually believe that they can be healthy in those five core life priorities because if they're not, I call it having a flat tire. There might be a better metaphor, but let's say you have a flat tire in the in the area of budget and finances. You know, always struggling, always trying to make ends we meet, you know, what are we going to do if we run out of money? How do we keep some income going? What can we do to protect ourselves? All those things. If we have a flat tire there it's going to be hard for us to have an attitude of purpose and fulfillment. And I've got a big noise going on outside my window here. I apologize.
2: <laughs> no uh, problem. There
7: we go. Okay. So, yeah, and that's or it could be home and family. If you've got some disruptions, uh, you know, in the family with a spouse or with children or parents, uh, you know, that really puts an extra load. And so it's hard to live a life that matters when you're just bogged down in that or any of the other areas. So that's what we want to address with a full cycle of uh of guests in those core topic areas give people really something to work on some things to be aware of but also and perhaps most importantly connections because our our show is sponsored by businesses who provide products and services to this age group and um it's not exclusively it's not just for seniors but anybody you know we're you know, we're kind of the sandwich generation mm-hmm. we have we have aging parents and we have kids and Grandkids and college students, and, you know, here we are really trying to spin all these plates and try to do what we can, you know, for everybody. Um, but we need help, and uh, so we'll have a second-half network where we'll have sponsors who are vetted already. Uh, these are tried and trusted. We will endorse them and recommend them, and if they're on our list, you can call them with confidence. And so it's not just some ideas and some enthusiasm because You know, one of the worst things that can happen is somebody leaves a church service or a conference or something with some good ideas. (laughs) Not that that's bad, but then you get back to reality and, oh, man, then it's a long time before we pick up those ideas again yeah, and yeah. have a chance to really do something with
2: them. Connect them to your, your real life. Well, again, yeah, second exactly. half uh, second yeah. half now, a radio show for Boomers and Beyond is going to be heard on our sister station, True Talk, 800 a.m., 6 o'clock p.m., Sunday nights, and that begins on June the 3rd, so mark your calendar. This is going to be a really useful program, not only for those of us who are baby Boomers, but for those who anticipate uh, reaching uh, uh, midlife and enjoying that, uh, that part of life as well. Well, we want want to welcome you to the KPDQ family and say just how thrilled we are that you're going to be joining us as a, a programmer here and look forward to, uh, to hearing your program on Sunday night, 6 o'clock p.m., starting on June the 3rd. Thank you, Georgine. That's great. Thanks for joining us. All right. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Have a I'm, good afternoon. i tuning you into the radio every day. Okay. So, thank right. you. We Talk can to listen to good. one another. <laughs> there we go. That. God bless Again, you, Georgine. You too. Again, Dr. Dan Critchett will be the host of Second Half Now, a radio show for boomers and beyond. True Talk, 800 a.m., 6 o'clock p.m., Sunday nights, beginning June the 3rd. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we'll wrap things up.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey,
2: we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, on May the 30th, 1948, it was before dawn on Memorial Day, 70 years ago, that the Columbia River was swollen. It heaved across its uh, boundaries. Local officials had delivered notices throughout the sprawling developmental uh, north of downtown Portland. Barring unforeseen developments, the notice said Vanport is safe. Well, those unforeseen developments did, in fact, develop. And within hours of the message's arrival under residents' doors, The makeshift railroad dike that protected the floodplain from Smith Lake cracked and then gave way shortly after 4 p.m. Water crashed down on the community, giving many residents just minutes to run for their lives. People formed human chains to try to help each other reach safety. But Vanport wasn't just flooded. It was washed into oblivion. It was essentially wiped off the map almost as quickly as it, it was set up. It was gone. Industrialist Henry Kaiser had built the uh, unincorporated Vanport City. It was originally called Kaiserville during the early days of World War II to house the thousands of people who were pouring into Portland to work in the shipyards, his shipyards. Well, the massive housing project was supposed to be temporary. The flimsy uh, buildings lived on after the war thanks to an ongoing dearth of affordable residences in the area, especially for African-Americans who were kept out of many Rose City neighborhoods, through the discriminatory practices known as redlining. Well, the consensus of opinion seemed to be, according to the Oregonian in 1947, that as long as over 20,000 people can find no other place to go, Vanport will continue to operate whether Portland likes it or not. Portland didn't particularly like it. The flood of 48, the result of an unusually wet winter, we have them here, followed by a warm spring, showcased the shortcomings of the region's services and the planning, and of course, it made all of Vanport's residents suddenly homeless. Imagine those numbers. It highlighted the limited housing options for many of them in the area and housing opportunities for others. It also helped create modern Portland, President Harry Truman toured the ruins of Vanport and declared that Congress would pass a program under which these disastrous floods will never happen again. And the results of the deluge, both physical and social, led some Portlanders to take a hard look at the community and themselves and to start thinking in fresh ways about what the city needed to do to become a thriving, forward-looking metropolis. Vanport's demise, some suggest, started something new. Really, Portland. There were 72,000 people. Workers who came to Portland during World War II to work in the shipyards, rather, there wasn't nearly enough housing for them, and that led to the creation of Vanport City. Uh, 42,000 workers and their families were living in Vanport at the peak of its population during the war. There were uh, approximate population of Vanport in May of 1948, at the time of the flood, 18,500, about 6,300 of whom were African-American. 9,942, that's the number of residential units that were built in Vanport in 1942 and 43. 484 row houses were later added uh, in the east part of Vanport. And uh, taking a look at uh, this community that sprung up at uh, wartime and then simply was washed away, 31 was uh, the number of feet high the Columbia River reached during that flood. This was more than three feet over the top um, uh, of the area levees. And that made history in Portland. And finally, 15 feet, that's uh, how far Vanport sat below the levels of the Columbia River and Smith Lake uh, before the flood Took place and the communities were simply wiped away. There were 15 deaths reported directly connected with the May 30th, 1948 Vanport deluge. Some survivors believe the real number was much higher, however. And 12, that's the number of days after the levees broke that then President Harry Truman arrived to Vanport to see the damage for himself. He said at the time, It's just as bad as I thought it was. I wanted to take a look at it because then you know more about it. And of course, Uh, There was legislation that followed to try to prevent uh, similar things from happening in the future. Again, 70 years ago today, the flood of 48 and the end of Vanport. Well, evangelist Franklin Graham, a son of the late Reverend Billy Graham, warned California this week that their state is in trouble as it nears next week's primary elections. Graham, whose father was a globally known preacher, died in February at the age of ninety nine, as we all know. Uh, He's in a nonstop, ten stop tour in California, urging fellow evangelical Christians to get out and vote in hopes of chipping away at the majority of the Golden State's Blue Wall, as he referred to it, during the speech on Monday night in Fresno in the state's Central Valley. The 65-year-old's old uh, 4th oldest son of Billy Graham, his five children, underscored the importance of participating in the democratic process. Our country is in trouble, he told the audience in the Fresno fairgrounds as part of the Decision America California Tour, according to the Fresno Bee. Your state's in trouble? You know that, but there are things that we can do. You know God hears prayers. Well, he invoked politics throughout the speech, reminding, the crowd that it's not too late to turn this state around while encouraging voters to lend their support to candidates who align with Christian values. Uh, of the stops on the California tour, three are in or bordering uh, critical House districts in the Central Valley. It wasn't designed that way. It just happens to be the case, while others hug the um, the line between red and blue up, uh, up and down the state. The New York Times reported the tour ends June the 1st. On primary day, again, that's in California, speaking to fellow evangelicals and top donors in a locker room at the Rose Bowl two weeks ago, he urged his supporters to stand up against California's blue wall, according to the Times, adding that it's time for church congregations to get out and vote. Even if his uh, message resonates with evangelicals who make up about 20 percent of California's population, according to the Pew Research Center, political strategists are still skeptical the state will turn red uh, come November. But they didn't calculate the uh, possibility of people praying that other more uh, important values through other means might be, uh, might emerge in the state of California. Well, coming up tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Barb Roos. She is the author of winning the worry battle life's lessons from the book of Joshua. I'm Looking forward to opening that portion of scripture and see what it has to say about worry and how to manage it. If you struggle with it and um, how to let go of it. So that's coming up tomorrow. And then on Friday, Assuming uh, there are no big uh, breaking stories, we will lighten up and have a bit of a fun Friday afternoon. I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at grice show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ